want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Fights On is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. Since 1972, Cubic's ACMI has been a cornerstone of air combat range instrumentation. Cubic's LVC will expand that capability into the future across multi-domain operations. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome back to Fights On. Today, we round out the flight school phase of the series with Air Force F-16 pilot Brian Rainwaters talking about training philosophies, being an instructor pilot, and the infamous SEER school. Aim high because once again, the fight's on. That competition is out there and it's in the open because steel sharpens steel. It's learning from mistakes. It's learning from others, trying to make not only yourself better, but making the team better. One of the things you say three times is bailout, bailout, bailout. On the third bailout, you pull the handles. Spoiler alert, no matter how good you are, everyone gets captured. The aggressors are entering the airspace at this time. Cruise faction, the combat spread was tight. Roger, tell you, I've got one, and he's in a left-hand turn. That's true, you're about to get guns. Box one on the F-5, nose down. Turn in. Fights On. Hi, welcome back to Fights On. I'm your host, Scott, and today we're talking with John Rainwaters. Rain is an F-16 pilot from the U.S. Air Force. Welcome, Rain. Hey, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate having you here. So, Rain, you flew the F-16. You were a demo pilot and also an instructor pilot. Can you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I was fortunate to do a few things during my active duty time on Air Force. The first one was being a first assignment instructor pilot, and I did that at Columbus Air Force Base. So when I graduated pilot training, I went to about a six-month course in the T-6 where I learned how to be an instructor in the T-6. Came back and I taught primary student, primary training in the T-6 for about three years, and then moved on to the F-16 after that, where I wrapped up my active duty time flying the Mighty Viper. All right, great. So... During that time, how many hours did you get? Where did you deploy? What kind of missions did you fly? Yeah, so when I was a T-6 instructor, uh, anomaly kind of happened. I was going through the Air Force. There was a big surge going on in Iraq and Afghanistan needing ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. They wanted more drones. Well, the Air Force couldn't produce them fast enough, so what they did was a stopgap measure, and that was the MC-12. It's a King Air 350. They threw a bunch of sensors on it, a bunch of people on it, and they pulled guys and gals from across the Air Force from every major weapon system. So Raptor pilots, C-17 pilots, AWAC pilots, you name it. And we all kind of rotated through and did a six-month stint. So while I was a FAPE, it was something unique. I deployed to Afghanistan, flying the MC-12 for about seven months. Came back to the T-6, 
wrapped up my time there after a few months of, again, teaching and instructing in the Mighty Texan before I transitioned to the F-16. During that my F-16 days, uh, I was stationed at Shaw Air Force Base for three years in a combat-coded squadron. The Gamblers deployed once in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. We actually deployed before that was even a name conflict, so it was right in the beginning days, which was a good time to be a fighter pilot if you wanted to go out there and do fighter pilot things, which is exactly what I wanted to do. I did that for three years at Shaw, and at the end of my time, I was getting ready to PCS to Holloman Air Force Base to be a B-course instructor in the F-16, and I was selected to be the F-16 demo pilot. So I spent two and a half more years at Shaw Air Force Base being the F-16 demo team commander and pilot, traveling across the country and really the globe flying air shows. So it was a pretty good deal. That's an awesome background. Appreciate you sharing that with us. And you know, you've got a pretty wide breadth of experience there from the training to the combat support, if you will, which, uh, you know, I've been on the receiving end of the Intel that that provides. So we greatly appreciate that. A lot of people think about the, you know, direct action, close air support, but there's so much that goes into that ISR and overwatch that just keeps those guys on the ground safe. And then of course, flying what everyone thinks about as fighter pilot missions, as well as then going to being a demo pilot, which is, I guess, some of the most technically demanding and hardest flying there is because it's all about precision, right? It is. And, you know, kind of to jump back there, the the ISR piece, kind of where I started, I was like, that's not a super sexy, fun thing to do, at least for most people. It was a great experience for me. And that's one of those things that I think grow where you're planted is a theme that a lot of people throw out there. And for me, that established a knowledge set that I would not have been exposed to, nor had an intricate knowledge of had I been exposed to it just in a normal fighter pilot sense. But understanding how the intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance at like a tactical level type platform works definitely paid dividends later on down the road as an F-16 pilot. And then jumping into kind of the last statement about the F-16 and demo flying being very technical. It absolutely is. I will say that it was very physically demanding because you're pulling nine G's anywhere from 10 to 15 times in a 15 minute span. And you're doing that sustained. So it was not uncommon to have a nine and a half G pull that might last 15 seconds or so. And prior to being a demo pilot, if you'd asked me how many times I pulled nine G's in the Viper, it was maybe a time. And that I just touched it briefly during a high aspect BFM sortie, which you're not going out there and doing every single day. It is very precise and you have gates that you're hitting. Uh, It's very, I guess there's a lot of not rote memorization because there are things that go into it that you, some variables you adjust and have to react to different environments, but really flying F-16 doing the seed mission, which is what we did at Shaw and they still do today is suppression of enemy air defenses as well as defensive counter air, the two primary dock statements, two main mission sets there. Those are very technically challenging and demanding type mission sets. There's a lot that goes into it. So I would say that was by far much more technical and challenging than flying the demo if we're comparing the two. Okay, so you've had the whole gamut, it sounds like, of experience as a pilot. You know, the what we think of as the high G extreme, the technical flying, the training flying. And that's a great setup 
for you and explains your experience and why we chose you to be here and talk about Air Force Flight School, because it all starts with training pilots to have these skill sets that you were able to put into use in the actual world. But before we talk about that, let's roll back and talk about what made you want to fly in the first place and how you achieved that goal. You know, I was fortunate. I grew up around a community of people that were involved in aviation. A lot of my neighbors flew for Delta or my friend's dads flew for Delta. They're all ex-Air Force or Navy guys. My parents were not in the military. My grandfather was in the military, World War II. That was my only exposure to the military, so it was very limited. But my dad, you know, he kind of saw the lifestyle that those guys lived as airline pilots and then also heard the stories when they were in the military and thought, hey, you know what, that might be something you'd be interested in. And so I would say, you know, there's some initial kind of like bumping in that direction or at least exposing me to it. And I went flying with a neighbor on as a beautiful fall day in a Piper Cub with the door open. And I know the the hook was in at that point. So I started trying to figure out what I needed to do in order to be a pilot that I needed to go. What was the Naval Academy? What was the Air Force Academy? What's ROTC? So I started figuring out what those things were and then what their requirements were to be a pilot and how to get into a commissioning source like the Academy or ROTC. And that really was the drive. Everything I did in really late middle school to high school was geared towards that goal of going into the Academy or going into ROTC to become a pilot. So every job I got, I always thought there might be some kind of aspect to it that would make my resume, if you will, look more enticing for an application into the Academy or ROTC. But again, right place, right time, which is a theme, I think, throughout most of my life so far. And again, very fortunate. I had a buddy whose dad wanted to teach him to fly, but he wanted to teach him to fly with someone. So I was afforded the opportunity to pay half insurance and for gas. And my buddy's dad would teach me to fly alongside my buddy. I flew on September 10th, 2001 was my first flight. The next day, obviously, a lot of things changed, and I'd say the world dynamics. And for me, being a young guy who wanted to fly, I then really was extra motivated to go out there and serve my country. So if I could fly and serve my country, it was a win-win. And that really just put me on the path and threw gas on the fire, if you will. That's awesome. And like you said, timing is everything. I think right place at the right time plays a huge part. But I think we're already seeing that it's having a goal, having a desire, and building towards that goal. So you you made that decision, you decided you wanted to fly, and what specifically got you to the Air Force, and then what got you to commissioning? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you said right place, right time. I, I do throw that out there. I've also added on there, right place, right time, right qualifications, which I think is really important for someone who's out there pursuing different things in aviation, who want to get something because you got to have those right qualifications. You got to know what the, what the qualifications are to get there so you can pursue them. But for me, again, tying that in, figuring out, all right, hey, what do I need to be a pilot? All right, I need to be an officer. So how do I become an officer? I can do ROTC or the academy. And for me, I applied, I started the application process to the Air Force Academy. I toured the Naval Academy. I toured the Air Force Academy. Being a young guy in high school. I was like, you know what? I don't know if I want to go do 
the military thing throughout my entire college. I want to have a college experience. ROTC was the happy blend for me. So I never actually submitted my academy application. I just went all in on the ROTC route. And that's how I ended up getting to that point. But, you know, again, once you're inside ROTC, it's not just show up and, hey, you'll get a pilot slot. From day one of ROTC or the academy, and it's probably the same way in the Navy, you're always being racked and stacked. And that is how it will be for the rest of your career. There's going to be a number one and there's going to be a number last. And you're competing for everything. Um, You know, when you get into the fighter community, when you get into the heavy community, there are guys you're in your year group that you're competing for promotions or you're competing for the next assignment, et cetera. But that was really the start of it was ROTC and then figuring out, all right, now I'm in ROTC. What do I need to do in order to be a pilot? All right, I need to have some extracurriculars. I need to have a good GPA. I need to do well. I need to show up. I need to be act an active participant in ROTC and figure out how to be a leader and start developing those skill sets. And all of those things, I'll, I'll say as an uh, ROTC grad, in my case, Navy as well, that this is just the start of the military journey where the higher you go, the more rarefied the air, if you will. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're you're being racked and stacked all the time and you have to do more than just the minimum. The, I mean, the minimum, the average guy in what we're talking about doing is an expert. So you really have to break yourself out to move forward. And I think that's true in a lot of organizations, but here with what we're talking about today, which is flying aircraft and high performance aircraft, there's a really good reason behind that because it's a completely unforgiving uh, skill set. The risks and the dangers are real. They can be fatal. And this just drives a culture of always endeavoring to to be a little better. The learning never stops. The achieving never stops. The being better never stops, right? Well, I'll say, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's funny. I was telling my seven-year-old the other day as we're doing his spelling words, I was just explaining to him because he, he wants to be a fighter pilot. But, you know, his kind of as he's embarking on his journey of learning and studying and tests and quizzes, I was like, it never ends. I was like, when I was flying the Viper, every week we'd have tests. You know, you're studying whatever, you know, the adversary's weapon system is for that week or whatever your weapon system is for that week. It it never ends the learning. And again, you know, with those tests, even something as simple as that in the squadron, you know, we would post those resu- results. And that's one thing I, I think that, you know, when you go through school and you go through college, there is that competition there, but it is hidden. When you get to a fighter squadron, that competition is out there and it's in the open because steel sharpens steel. So the test scores are published, you know, outside the vault where you can see what everyone did. You never want to be the wedge, you know, especially twice in a row. And that's one thing that kind of drives it's a it's a motivating factor there. It's not playing I have a secret and that's something you never want to do in an aircraft, let alone a fighter, it's learning from mistakes. It's learning from others, trying to make not only yourself better, but making the team better. Right. So let's talk about, you go through ROTC and as you said, even in the air force, it's not a given that you're going to go to flight school. It's not a given you're going to be a pilot. 
let alone get fighters. What does that look like for the Air Force? How does someone get selected to go to flight school? So what is true today will not be true tomorrow. And I think that's something to put an asterisk here. Mm -hmm. Everyone's experience will vary and it varies year by year. So first and foremost is the needs of the Air Force. If there are no need for pilots that year, then guess what? It's going to be a really tough year trying to compete for a pilot slot. The good news is that the horizon and the demand for pilots is high right now. And I don't think that's going to change in the near future. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there, which I would say is definitely varied from decade to decade and year to year. So the first step is how do you get that pilot slot? Well, it, it boils down to your commander's ranking, which is what the leadership inside that ROTC detachment or at the Academy, your squadron, what they think of you, how well do they think one, how well do you lead? What is the potential of your leadership ability, your grades, your extracurricular activities showing up? I usually say is like 90% of the battle, but if you're the person who's always the ghost and never shows up, never participates, that is going to hurt you just overall. And I think that's applicable with pretty much anything. So you got to show up, you got to be active. You got to be constantly trying to improve, showing that you do have the skill sets that are at least meet the minimum requirements and the potential to grow. But all that stuff gets put together. And again, it might vary between the Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy and ROTC, but essentially you're going to be graded. There's going to be a criteria and a set of stuff, if you will. And again, there, there might be slight variations, but you can figure out what those things are. And you're going to be racked and stacked. All that stuff's going to be compiled and it's going to be quantified. And if there's 10 people that are applying for pilot slots that year and there's eight pilot slots, well, you know, the line is going to be drawn at some point at some number average. And if you're above the line, you'll get a pilot training slot. And if you're not, then you're going to be moving down the list to other, other things that you put on your dream sheet and what the Air Force needs. But again, it varies year to year depending on what the demand is for pilots but it comes down to how well you perform amongst your peers, not only inside that detachment at, at your school in ROTC or the academy, but you're getting compared against everyone across the nation. So that's just that's just getting out the gate to try and get to pilot training. Right. And already we're seeing another facet that I believe gets carried forward, which is the ability to assess what's going to lead to success and then execute a plan to achieve your mission and achieve success in that mission. And it just keeps coming faster and in more complex environments until ultimately you're doing that in the air as well, right? And that's that's what flight school really is all about on some level. Yeah, absolutely. I think, there, you know, it's being a sponge and absorbing the information around you. And for me, I think the key to success there is if he who processes the information faster and can come up with a more, you know, reasonable solution, it doesn't have to be the absolute solution. If it's an 80% solution, but gets you going out the gate and going in the right direction. And then you can react to the dynamics and the variables that are then presented. Once you've started action on your plan, it'll make you more successful. And again, you can draw that theme across, but the first step is when showing up day one of ROTC is kind of being that sponge seeing how the environment works, see how the people work, figuring out what 
what does success look for? What is success? What is the win? And, you know, it's quantified. There's a syllabus out there for every military training program. There is nuance and art to interacting with people and things like that, that you can't find in a book. But in the end, you know what the, you, then you know what the criteria is. And if you don't know what the criteria is, there is a way to figure it out. And that's part of it. And then when you show it to pilot training, guess what? There's a syllabus and there is a defined, Hey, this is how you win. And again, there's some left and right bounds that might adjust year to year or based on people. But yeah, I think a hundred percent is the ability to figure out and assess the environment and what, what does success look like and what is it defined as is a, is a key that carries throughout. Right. And you said the air force, just like all the other services have syllabi syllabus for each course. And what does that look like for flight school? Let's talk about what's your first step. Uh, I know you said it's changing all the time. Uh, Back in my day, I was familiar with Air Force friends doing something called IFS. Is that still out there? And what is that? It is still out there. And so I'll I'll put again an asterisk before everything I say here. What's true today won't be true tomorrow. We say, I mean, pilot training hadn't changed in 50 years. And now it's rapidly changing in the Air Force as they're trying to figure out how to more efficiently produce pilots. So someone going through today has had a different experience than someone going through going through five years ago, which when I went through in you know, 2008 was not the case. So um, when it comes down to it, right now, everyone starts out an initial flight screening. And that has been the same for about 15 years now. In 2006, 2007, the Air Force went to a company out in Pueblo, Colorado that created almost like a little mini pilot training experience flying DA-20. So you would show up there, my class, I think, and no kidding, at 69 students. We had a relatively high attrition rate of about 30% because they're screening people out of the program. But at my experience, we had about 25 hours out there, you would have two solo, uh, you'd have a pattern solo and then an area solo, but you'd show up in the morning, you would do a stand up where they're putting you through an emergency procedure. Someone's getting picked and they're standing at attention and they're getting presented with this problem and they got to come up with a solution in front of everyone. That's something that translates into air force pilot training later on. You'd have tests. Again, you have a syllabus where you're again, building from, all right, what are the systems of this plane? How does the fuel go into the plane? And how does it come out of the plane, et cetera? And it, again, it's just a little, it was a cookie cutter copy and paste of pilot training just in a different plane. And then about a six week period just to kind of filter people out. Prior to that, it had been go to your local FBO and get 40 hours and get your pilot's license. Today, and at least as, as of, you know, August of 2022, it's a shortened syllabus. They might do a pattern solo, but again, it's just a few hours. They figured out, hey, we just need to get you through X, Y, and Z, and we will figure out, all right, this person has a high probability of getting through pilot training, so they're going to send them to pilot training, and if they get through pilot training, great. If not, they're willing to accept that risk and wash them out somewhere in the T6 or T38 or T1 phase. Okay, so... Over time, the Air Force, it sounds like, has been looking at ways to make sure that we're being more efficient in training. 
getting a guy not just in the cockpit to make sure he has some basic aptitude, but that he can learn in the Air Force or the military system. Is that essentially what that breaks down to? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, and I don't know what the numbers are, but let's say it costs $2,000 an hour to operate a T6. Again, I made that number up, but maybe a DA-20 costs $500 an hour to operate. Obviously, if you can figure out early on in the DA-20 that this person's not going to cut it, it's going to save you a lot of money when they get to the T6 and they absolutely can't make it in the T6. So that's definitely one aspect of it because limited, limited number of cockpits, limited number of instructors, limited number amount of time. Right. So trying to figure out again, how to be the most efficient to get people into their major weapon system cockpit down the road is a big focus. And I think, you know, you can attest to this, you know, based on your experience in the Navy and just what we've seen over the last, you know, 20 years, 30 years of how the DOD in general has transformed, you know, from this big behemoth. And we're trying to get to this more lean, innovative, efficient system because resources are limited. So it's trickled down. And again, it's a big bureaucracy. So things take time, but that's a big push inside the air force is trying to be leverage innovation to be more efficient at doing doing everything. So TB, TBD, as far as how <laughs> how it's working out, there's definitely some success stories, but I think you know there's there's growing pains that come along with it. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll hear this as a common thread throughout the series, which is you know for someone of my age who got in just at the end of the Cold War, the military was this behemoth, this this immense organization compared to what we've got now. And when you have that size, you can just sort of push, pardon the analogy, but you can just sort of push the meat into the grinder and you're going to get sausage <laughs> out the other side. And, you know, we're, we're a smaller, we're a leaner organization, as you said, and that means that we need to pick up efficiencies. And I don't want to derail now, but I think we'll end up talking out over the course of the series about how we, we can definitely learn from other systems and have learned from other systems, but there comes a point where business models, at least in my opinion, don't translate to the military because at some point the mission set diverges too much. But that being said, we should yeah. probably uh, describe for the listener, what is the DA-20? Is an aircraft? It is an aircraft. So diamond aircraft, it's a civilian, uh, civilian plane, predominantly used at flight schools, little side-by-side, uh, you know, trainer that you'll have a student and obviously an instructor pilot in. It's all, I want to say it's all composite made. Ironically enough, as a demo pilot, I got a tour of their factory up in London, Ontario, which is pretty cool. But again, an efficient trainer that's lightweight, low cost, and allows you to go out there and screen, screen students as well as expose them, give them a little bit of taste of what pilot training is going to be like when they show up two months or six months after going through that initial flight screening. Okay. So once you're through IFS, you're in, I think what most people would consider flight school proper. Can you give us that syllabus? Give us that outline of what the phases are in general at a high level. And then let's start diving into what you learn in each one. So you have three phases in pilot training. And again, I'll put an asterisk there because there are some differences like UPT 2.5, which is something new for the Air Force. But talking the traditional sense and what it looked like for the past 50 years and then what it 
still looks like at most of the pilot training bases is you have three phases. Phase one, which is academics, lasts about six weeks, and that's where you're learning all the systems of the T6. And then slowly, you might get exposed to some basic instruments, and you haven't touched an aircraft yet. You've done a few simulators at this point, which is mostly like, how do you turn it on? Some emergency procedure simulators, very basic stuff in that six-week period. At the end of six weeks, you're going to hit the flight line. That's phase two, and that's where you're flying the T6. Now, when I went through, and again, probably up into the last five years, that was a hard set six months, more or less. You're going to get roughly 80 to 90 hours in the T6, and you're going to be taught how to fly aerobatics, which we call like the contact phase. Go out there doing loops, doing patterns, the basics, left hand, right hand, monkey skills there. You'll start incorporating instrument flying, formation flying, and then some navigation cross-country type flying. The last kind of three aspects, once you get through the contact phase, I think that's like the biggest kind of initial hurdle and the couple check rides you're getting through. Then they start blending in. They try to keep everything, hey, we're just going to do all instruments and maybe a formation ride and then fully formation. And then maybe you mix in an instrument ride because the weather's bad and the formation flight's not going to go that day, et cetera. That's the T6 phase. Now they have gone to proficiency advancing students out based on experience if they're doing well. And then it used to be like my class at the end of T6s, we all track select to phase three, which is you're either going to go into the T38, which is the fighter bomber course, or the T1, which is the heavy course. Now, again, I think they have, once you're kind of done, they don't slow the class down based on the slowest person. So someone who might have busted a couple check rides or maybe they had, they were sick and slightly behind to get everyone finished roughly at the same time within a week or so to track. Now, if there's someone who's burning through fast, they'll track select them or they'll sit them for a few weeks and then track select them. It just kind of depends on what, because they're trying to pump people through the syllabus. So it, it is changing there. When you move into phase three, again, you're still going to be the T-38, that fighter bomber track, or the T-1, which is going to track to the heavies. Again, here's another asterisk. One thing that didn't exist prior to about 2009, in the T-38, if you went to the T-38, you were either going to come out as a fighter pilot, a bomber pilot, or a FAPE. Out of the T-38, you can track to anything. So C-17, U-28, KC-135, et cetera. It's purely dependent upon the needs of the Air Force there. But phase three, I'm not super familiar with the T1 because obviously I went through the T38 track, but you're going to come out with roughly 110, 115 hours out of each one of those. The syllabus is going to mirror more or less what you did in the T6 and that phase two. You're going to have a contact phase. However, in phase three, they're going to reference it as the transition phase. You're learning how to take off and land. You're learning how to do a loop in the T-38 and the T-1. Again, you're probably just doing more instrument patterns and things of that nature. You'll have formation. You'll have navigation in both of those phases, and it'll look slightly different based upon the plane. If you're in the T-1, you might go do a two-ship, which is going to be very spread out because that's how you know a C-130 do an airdrop or a C-17 do an airdrop might do it. And then if you're 
in the F or if you're in the T 38, you're going to be doing four ships. If you're tracking to the fighters, uh, things of that nature. Okay. So you start in the T six, uh, in this first phase. And we talked about the T six a little bit in an earlier episode. That's a, a, uh, one or two seat. Well, it's two seat, but you might not, not always fly it with a, an instructor pilot turboprop, right? And correct. So you're learning the basics of aviation there. And let's talk a little bit about what the T6 does as a training aircraft. I don't want to sit here too long, but basically you've moved up from that DA20, you're flying something that's a little bit more high performance and you're learning about things like how lift versus drag affects you. Uh, you're learning about how to run a turboprop, right? You are. It is uh, very different coming from you know someone who might have no flight experience or their only flight experience is the DA20. And that's part of the reason that initial flight screening is, th- is there to figure out, all right, hey, can this person learn the Air Force way? Do they have the aptitude to kind of figure, figure this stuff out? And then, all right, yes, all right, let's send them to the T6. No, okay, let's go figure something out. But every, I mean, almost every syllabus in the Air Force, the prereq in this case, like the Air Force does not expect you to know how to fly when you show up to the T6. They expect you to know what you were taught in IFS. There are people that show up to the T6 who are regional pilots with 4,000 hours. And I've seen it in both cases. The regional pilot with 4,000 hours ends up graduating as the distinguished graduate. And the regional pilot with 4,000 hours ends up being at the bottom of the class because they couldn't figure out how to learn the Air Force way. And here's something, if, if there's a student or someone listening to this who's going to go to pilot training, and this is all you get out of this, is when you show up, just have a good attitude. And the expectation is to know what the syllabus is and be prepared for everything you're opted for. So every ride or simulator that you are opted for, per the syllabus, be prepared to go out there and do your best at that next event. If you're the regional pilot, 4,000 hours, no one cares. Don't show up with a chip on your shoulder and say, why well, I already know how to do this. Or the worst statement possible is, well, over here, we did it this way. That's the fastest way to to end up in a, just a miserable spot. So again, you show up into the T6, it's there. It's a high-performance turboprop. The nice piece of it in the contract, they wanted that turboprop to have a jet-like feel. So there is a rudder augmentation device in the T6 that's pretty good. It's not great, but all that torque that you experience flying, the TAD is automatically adjusting to try to give it a jet-like feel. So when you're doing a loop or you're doing aerobatics, you're flying formation, and you're making big power changes, you're not constantly having to step on the rudders. You still have to use the rudder. You definitely have to use it on takeoff. But again, it's supposed to try and give the T6 that jet-like feel to then get you ready to go fly aircraft in phase three and then follow on to your major weapon system. Okay, that's that's interesting. I was going to ask about that because I know going all the way back to the pilots who fly the warbirds and you know the guys who flew those for, for real back in World War II and, and maybe even to Korea, it was a different kind of flying. So this is another example of how we're taking technology and stripping away the stuff we don't need. Because if you're not going to go fly a prop aircraft 
and you know turboprop still a prop aircraft uh you don't really need those skill sets you don't need to learn the idiosyncrasies of how that works and i guess that probably makes an easier transition to that next phase with the t-38 uh or the t-1 and let's just uh describe those for the listener really quickly because we haven't talked about those before the t-38 i'm going to grossly oversimplify uh, as a lead in and then let you uh, take it from there. The T-38 to the to the layman looks a lot like an F-5, which I think most people who are listening to this will have seen. Uh, there may or may not be a, a movie out there from several years ago where they're, they're painted black and people may have seen them, but they look a lot alike, but they're not the same thing, right? They're they're not. It, I mean, the T thirty eight was designed, and most of the ones that are still flying today rolled off the assembly line in the mid sixties or early seventies, and it was designed for those legacy fighters. So it looks very similar to the T five. It doesn't have the leading edge slats, which the F five having that makes it more maneuverable than the T thirty eight. A little bit better slow speed handling characteristics, because one of the things the T thirty eight. It's a, it is a fun plane to fly, but you have to respect it. Um, you know, unfortunately, I lost a buddy early on in, in pilot training in a T-38 mishap in the pattern. It, if, you've, if you do not respect it, it will kill you very quickly. Okay. And then the T-1 is essentially a, a business jet, isn't it? It looks like a business jet. I always say it looks like a Learjet, but it's a Hawker Beechcraft, I think, is the official Beach 400 is the uh, the type rating you get flying that around, but it looks like a business jet. And the thing to note here too, again, with the in- leveraging innovation, leveraging technology and things always changing, one aspect they found with the T1, I mean, it was designed to go point A, fly several hours, land at point B. The way the Air Force utilizes it, it flies to point from point A to point B, which might be 30 minutes away, does 10 patterns, swap students, does another five patterns and then flies back. And that is a lot of wear and tear on an aircraft that was not designed to do a lot of pattern work, et cetera. So I think what we'll end up seeing as the T7 rolls online to replace the T38, one potential option is to just have everyone go back to what it used to be. You were in the T37, which was the predecessor to the T6, and then everyone went to the T38. So you could have a two-plane pilot training program again, or potentially just do a bunch of T6 training for those that are going to go into the heavy route, and then they can get more follow-on experience in the you know C-17, C-130 track, and those that are going to go fighters will get some T7 experience. But again, there are also variants of the, the T6 that have better technology with MFDs, HUDs, et cetera. So you could do more training in a T6, which is going to be cheaper to operate than a C-17 per hour. So again, there's a lot of things that are being looked at. Again, how to how do you leverage technology to make better pilots, to make pilots faster if you can even make them? Yeah. Let's put an asterisk on the T-7 as well and come to, back to that when we're talking about the future because uh, I do want to delve into that airframe a little bit. Can you tell me what was it like? So you, you clearly had some hours before you went into the whole process and then you did the, did the IFS. So what was that primary like for you? Do you have any uh, interesting stories that illustrate the point of what that was like flying for you getting into the T6, moving up into that high performance turboprop? 
You know, um, I did have my pilot's license prior to going into pilot training, but it had been about five years since I had flown a small aircraft prior to going to IFS, which I went to IFS in February. And then I started pilot training in July of that year and then started flying in, I think, September, like September 4th. So we're coming up on, on that anniversary. So there's definitely some breaks there. But I remember specifically... You know, that everyone's like, hey, you're going to drink from a fire hose. Hey, you're going to drink from a fire hose. And so when I got my stack of books from the printer, you know, which was just like four feet tall, or just like, this is, this is a lot. And it was everything you needed to know for the T6. There's so much information. It definitely is like drinking from a fire hose. And so part of the first step was figuring out, all right, how do I digest this information? Where do I even begin? Because I don't even know what I don't know yet. And so I leaned on guys who were just six weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks ahead of me to say, hey, where, where did you start? So that's a good resource to kind of lean on is people who just recently went through that experience and ask them to share, hey, so that, that's what I did. Like, what do you recommend? Do I need to know the two T6 Vol 3 right now or the 11217 right now or the Dash 1? And here's a hint. Just start with the dash one, which is the systems manual and figuring out, all right, how does the engine work? How does the fuel system work, et cetera, going through that process. And then specifically, the one thing that stands out to me is my exposure to instruments, because you get that started in phase one, or at least you did. And that was like reading Chinese to me, like an ILS, trying to read and understand what an ILS was, the instrument landing system, how you land in bad weather. It might as well have been Chinese because at that point hadn't done a simulator, hadn't talked about it with anyone. We just had to read about it and then take a test on it. And so for me, that initial part of like instruments was really challenging because I didn't know what any of this stuff meant. I'd never seen a real world application of it. I'd never seen it in the simulator yet. And that was, you know, those probably two or three weeks where you're out there flying or getting ready to fly contact flight. So I'm worried about what the parameters are for a loop or Cuban eight. And then, Oh, by the way, I'm getting ready for what I'm opted for, which is an instrument test. And I don't know what any of this stuff means. So it's going to be different for everyone, but there are definitely going to be those moments where you get something very easily and someone else doesn't. And then it'll be a role reversal at some point. Right. And I'm going to guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that continued throughout your military career. And that's part of the strength of a team is it seems like the best teams out there always have people who are really good at some things and people who are really good at other things. And once you figure out how to leverage that within the team, it, it pulls everyone ahead. Yeah, 100%. Because I think that's in being an instructor in T6s, I definitely have my favorite class that went through and the least favorite class. The favorite class, what was great about them is you saw like, hey, this person really did well in the contact phase and they helped their buddies out. They didn't play I have a secret and like, oh, you know, I learned this on this sortie or I, and they like, I goofed this up and they told the class. And then you would see it later on down the road where there are some people who just kind of cruise through, but the average dude or dudette, again, you're, they're going to be stronger in some areas versus others. And it's figuring that out and working as a team sharing that knowledge because like when it comes down to 
rolling across whatever border it might be, the Raptor can do things that the F-35 can't do. And the F-35 can do things that the Raptor can't do. And then they both can do things that the Viper can't do. And then the Viper can do things that they can't do. So knowing the strengths and weaknesses and the capabilities, when you translate down really what this is about, knowing the capabilities of those you're fighting with is huge so that you can leverage leverage those strengths and weaknesses. Okay, so going back to our building blocks here of both our discussion and this entire series, we're building up the skill sets, we're building up the knowledge, we're making sure that people can move to the next phase efficiently with a with a high probability of success. And now we're talking about starting to integrate knowledge about other people, other platforms, other capabilities to make the whole greater than some of the parts. So to that end, let's talk about, you know, what are these next phases after what you just discussed that get you to your wings and they then get you to being a fate? Because I want to talk about your being a fape a little bit. I I know it's not what every pilot wants to do immediately coming out, but I know, <laughs> you know, from my, right, from, oh boy, here we go in, I'm back to flight school again. But I know yep. from my experience, you can go through courses and you have an opinion of your instructors and you have an opinion of the syllabus and then suddenly you're teaching and it all comes from a different view. And, and when I was teaching, granted not in flight school, you learn almost as much teaching as you do being taught. But before we get there, let's finish out this flow of how you get your wings. So again, back to my, there's an asterisk there because UPT 2.5, you get your wings after the T6 now, which is something very different. But traditionally, you'll get your wings at the end of phase three. So you now have spent about a year in pilot training from phase one to phase three there. This doesn't include IFS. And at the end of it, or as you approach your graduation night, about two, three weeks out, you'll have your assignment night. And that is where you'll you'll put in your dream sheet of hopes and dreams and yada, yada, yada. You'll be racked and stacked amongst your peers, needs their force, all that stuff comes together. And then you'll have your assignment night where they'll tell you, hey, you're going to go fly the F-16. You're going to be a fape. You're going to go fly the C-17, et cetera. You'll have about a week and a half or so after that assignment night to do some top-off syllabus rides. If you're tracking bombers in the T-38 phase, you would go out and fly low-level navigation formation rides. If you're going to go be a FAPE or fly fighters, you're going to go out and do four-ship T-38 rides and four-ship tactical formation. If you're going to go fly the KC-135, then you're going to go out there and do formation T1 rides and close trail. And again, there's some of that that undoubtedly uh, is no longer true and it might come back into the syllabus tomorrow. It it might still be there. It's just rapidly changing and evolving. Okay, so you, you've got your wings and as you said, you had the T-38 track uh, and you were tracked fighters slash FAPE now and you ended up FAPE. Now, if you, if you become a FAPE, are you definitely going to fighters after that? No, again, from day one ROTC, you're always being racked and stacked, and the same is still held true. You know, at that point, once you're now a FAPE, you're now competing with FAPEs in your year group for your assignment. So about two years into your FAPE assignment, you'll find out what you're going to go fly afterwards. And again, needs of the Air Force and where where you lie. I know my squadron 
we had a really good boss and I know he, he went to bat for us, but you know, they're looking now at like your performance reports, et cetera, things like that. A little bit more officer type norms versus in pilot training. Everything can be for the most part quantified and is very objective. All right, here are all his academic tests. Here are their flights. All that stuff is scored. Well, now when you're a FAPE, you're not getting scored every single day. It's really based on how well you're doing and perceived by your leadership as an officer and in flying ability to then get racked and sacked amongst every FAPE on the base. So when you're a FAPE, there's typically two T6 squadrons at every base. There's a T38 squadron and then a T1 squadron at each pilot training base. So for fighter and bomber FAPEs, you're competing from with FAPEs from the T38 squadron, the two T6 squadrons. When you're a T, you can be a T6 FAPE or a T1 FAPE with that heavy track, you're competing, you know, amongst two squadrons of people there. So the rack and stack, again, it's just kind of the beginning of the process and it, it keeps on rolling from there. Okay, so let's jump into that period where you are a FAPE and we can even go back into you know the, the training phases if you want. Let's get in the cockpit and tell me about some experiences that illustrate the things you've been learning throughout flight school, be it with yourself or with a student. Take us into the cockpit and let us know what that's like. So everyone is different, but figuring out how to convey a message to the student where they can process that information and then go out there and apply it. That is the biggest and the toughest thing I think for most people to learn as an instructor, you have to know the material, you have to know the syllabus. That stuff is kind of now like when you show up day one of pilot instructor training at Pitt, learning the syllabus, what do you have to teach these students? You got to know the book inside and out. You got to know, all the regulations inside and out because you'll be quizzing and you'll be instructing to that and held to that level. But the finesse and the art comes in figuring out how to convey those messages where someone can process it. And I leaned on my experience, right? Everyone, you go, you're a product of your environment. Well, I knew the way I learned and I could see like, you know, I remember when I was flying around the T6 in the early days, and you're just hanging on for dear life and the instructors back there just jabbing away, you're not processing any of that information, but that was one of those things. All right, Hey, I'm gonna put that in my pocket and I'll save that for later. And then, you know, you're like, all right, I remember this instructor going through doing formation and he showed me this, this, and that. I was like, man, that really clicked for me. What was his method? How did he convey that message? I'm like, all right, that's what he did. So I'm gonna throw that in my pocket. So trying to like glean on my limited experience as a student, like, hey, what was good and what was bad, and then take that in to being an instructor. And it's not going to be something that was overnight, but as you were flying a bunch with students, students from all across the country and all across the globe, I remember one in particular, I flew with a student from an African nation. He had never ridden a bicycle. He obviously went through IFS. He had never driven a car until getting to the United States. So this was someone who had about 15 hours in a DA-20. I flew his first ride in the T-6. Needless to say, he was still, his mind was still in the, in the classroom when we were beating up the pattern. Like he had 
no concept. And to be fair, like he'd never been exposed to anything like that before in his life. So it was quite a challenge. You're like, all right, Hey, how do I, how do I, I know what the syllabus says. I need to teach him this ride, but we obviously have a few more things to cover. And so being able to perceive and try and figure out what your student is doing, what they need and how they learn is the biggest challenge. And as an instructor, like it doesn't mean like after two months, you're good to go. It's one of those things that you always are constantly evolving and learning because there's always something, some curveball that a student will throw you that you least expect. I got a buddy, the story I've told it a couple of times on my podcast, which is in the T6 in the pattern, you have a term breakout. And that's when a pattern conflict is going to develop. You can have 12 aircraft in the pattern. At some point, there's going to be a traffic conflict and there's right of ways and there's rules. And if you are a lower priority, you are required to break out of the pattern, which is typically climbing up and going to a reentry point. Well, the instructor told the student to break out. And this is a foreign student. Told him to break out again. He didn't do it. So the instructor took the aircraft, broke the plane out of the pattern, went to the reentry point, came back in, and the instructor landed. He wasn't really happy based on where the student was in the in the training pipeline. But in the debrief, he asked him, why didn't you break out? And he's like, well, you didn't say it three times. Well, one of the things you say three times is bailout, bailout, bailout. On the third bailout, you pull the handles. And those are the little things that you just never know what, what the students can present at you. So as an instructor, you're always trying to read your student, figure out, hey, how can I communicate and get him to or her to receive this message? Yeah, that's a great point that you you are always doing that. And I think that's something else that they're teaching you subconsciously, maybe even in the military. I'll say in ROTC, uh, I presume in flight school, I know going through my various training pipelines is because when you get to be a leader, when you get to be especially a mid-level leader, you're teaching in everything you do, whether you're an instructor billet or not. And, you know, there's some philosophical differences on this, but generally the best instructors are the ones who know how to reach their students, not the ones who just browbeat their students into learning their way. And I think you've just illustrated that really well, that you have to have an ability to sense what type of learner your student is and, that just makes you a better teacher and it, it gets a better pilot out the door in the end. You know, and that's one of the things that uh, I think it, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there as an instructor, like there's the stick and carrot method. And I think most individuals who get to this point and that can be I mean, probably fair to say for most military training programs that typically the student there is motivated and wants to succeed. And so I found like, yeah, you could like belittle someone or yell and scream at them. But even when someone makes a mistake and it's an honest mistake and they're learning, they're usually beating themselves up enough that you don't need to beat them up anymore. It's all right. Hey, one, you're not the first and you're not the last to do this. Like, let's figure out why you made this mistake and how do we fix it? Uh, versus I definitely have the instructors going through that would just make you feel like you're an inch tall and you're already beating yourself up. So, I think the best instructors I had going through, like they knew you knew you messed up. So there was no point in even like hammering that home, like copy that one. The horse is dead. Let's figure out what led us down this path and how to fix it. Right. When, with the Navy, 
to be an instructor, a schoolhouse instructor on, I'll say, generic topics, not something specific to, say, flight school. We had to go to actually one of the local community colleges and take a course that was essentially the same course people got for uh, becoming a substitute teacher in that particular state. And I remember the instructors had been briefed in. We were an all-military class. They didn't try and try and integrate. And one of the things they pointed out to us was, your techniques are going to be a little bit different because by the time you've gotten to this course, and it doesn't matter what it is. It can be an enlisted air crew course. It can be a course for sonar technicians. It can be a course for pilots on strategy and tactics. It can be for an infantryman. You've got people who have volunteered to do something. They're almost always type A personalities. And they've already achieved to get here. So you don't need to use, you need to have them in your toolkit, but don't be too quick to use those techniques that I think in other learning environments sometimes need to be used. The, the person's own worst critic is their, themselves. And you can do a lot more harm as a teacher than good if you use the wrong tool. Uh, 100%. That's actually interesting. The Navy does it. And I think the Air Force probably, like, that is one aspect that is discussed and some courses have a requirement for some kind of training. Like to go back to the academy and teach, you do have to get your master's in, I think, academia or in uh, education to be a, a teacher. Yeah. yeah, education or psychology or something. Then, you know, there's, there's a couple you can do it in, but the the point is you want to be able to figure out how to give these people some kind of basis to go out there and instruct and interact with individuals they're trying to mentor and guide through the process right so we've talked about how you got to be a pilot we've talked about being a fape which we didn't delve a whole lot into it but i think probably in the end made you a better if not pilot maybe part of the squadron Right, probably made you a better pilot as well with with the hours and the training. But let's let's change gears just a little bit before we move on to the future. Because once you've gotten through all this, I want to. We've talked a lot about training philosophy, which I think is great because that's something that's critical to how we learn and how we decide what the best way to teach people is. Let's change gears a little bit because at the end of pilot training, you guys end up going through something that is completely unlike flying a plane and has none of the um, training philosophies that we just discussed and that's survival training. <laughs> yeah. The uh, old stick and carrot. It's more of the stick. Right. Um, <laughs> so SEER is the survival evasion resistance training that you go through um, at the end of pilot, typically at the end of pilot training before you go on to your major weapon system training the B course or, um, et cetera, you might do that after you finish, but they really, again, try to get all the parachute training, water survival, uh, resistance training done before you head out the door to go to the F 16 or C 17, et cetera. It is, uh, I would say not a whole lot of fun. At least it wasn't in my experience. It's not terrible, but you go out and we spend three weeks out in Fairchild uh, out in Washington state, Spokane, Washington. And the first part of that seven days, it's more of the academic portion where you're going to sit in an auditorium for the morning and you might learn how your starting fire is, how you're evading radios, 
again, it's the, all right, this is how this stuff works in the afternoon, more lab hands-on type experience. So if you talked about, you know, starting fires, shelter building, et cetera, then in the afternoon, you're going to go out there and learn how to build. You're going to go build a shelter out of sticks and twigs, et cetera. And whatever's in your seat kit. The next phase of that training is the escape portion or it's the evade portion rather where they're going to drive you up into the woods. You're going to be in a small element of seven or so people. And for three days, four days or so, you're going to be hiking around the woods, camping, uh, learning how to set up shelters, etc. The last half of those days, we kind of move into the evade portion where there are going to be people out there who are hunting you, trying to capture you. They shot you down and now you're evading through their country. And your instructor is with you for the beginning part of that to kind of like, hey, this is how you do it. And then they cut you loose and then you're trying to get to a rescue point and get out. And spoiler alert, no matter how good you are, everyone gets captured. Like we thought we were great. We made it to the end. And then they put you on a bus and they take you to the next phase of training, which is the resistance training. And in that resistance training, that is more of, You'll get exposed to a friendly captor, maybe a, a governmental player captor who's trying to expose, try to utilize you for propaganda, like people have seen in prisoners of war used in previous conflicts, to the 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 beating portion of it, which again I make it sound it's not it's not terrible, but someone's gonna get slapped in the face, and usually everyone gets slapped in the face. They have different methods to put you into uncomfortable positions as an individual, as a group, trying to get you to give up information. But they're giving you the baseline the, and the basics of how do you return with honor? How do you know when you're trying to be utilized for propaganda? And spoiler alert, they're always going to use you for propaganda. So being able to recognize that, know when they're a bad guy is trying to be your friend, turns out they're probably not trying to be your friend and they're trying to exploit you. What are some tools you can use to try and minimize that or prevent that from happening? And again, that's a three-week course that everyone goes through. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough, like my squadron was prior to Operation Hint Resolve, you get to go through a, a, a top-off course, which is more advanced, getting exposed for a week of just, we call it advanced beatings. <laughs> but it's another SEER course that you go through and they're putting you through Again, different scenarios, different players, and giving you more tools for your tool bag. God forbid you have to use those. Right. And this is just another example of the drinking from the fire hose that is flight school. Because you've learned about all this stuff that you've already talked about. You've, you know, avionics, aerodynamics, the stick and rudder skills. And now you have to learn or at least be exposed to these skill sets because the reality is... Uh, just flying. Let's not talk about combat flying. Flying is inherently dangerous and something goes wrong and you could find yourself uh, in the mountains alone, you know, needing not only to survive, but maybe figure out a way to help the rescuers find you, self-rescue yourself. And then, you know, obviously at the other end of the spectrum or the extreme end of the spectrum, you've done this in somebody else's territory who isn't too friendly to us. And, you need to know how, or at least be exposed to some ideas of, you know, 
how to comport yourself in that situation. I think a lot of that came out of out of the Vietnam experience. And you said return with honor. And the idea that if we expose you guys to some of this, number one, you're a lot better prepared to deal with it than if you'd had no exposure at all. And then also setting up this expectation that, you know, everyone has a breaking point. You're going to get there and you need to do the, your duty to the best of your ability. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the, the training is really good and you kind of hit on it in my, you know, we, we got the extremes, but typically your survival gear has two sides to it. You know, if you're talking the raft, it's got a black side and it's got a bright orange side. You know, knowing your environment, if you punch out over the Atlantic Ocean on a training mission, you want to try to be as bright and visible as possible, helping the rescuers find you. If you do that in bad guy land, then you want to be as small and invisible so that they can't find you and only the good guys can find you. And this is one of those things that you do this recurrent training, even once you're flying whatever plane it ends up being in the Air Force, every two years, you're going to go through and spend a day doing survival refresher training. Um, the resistance portion, the evading portion, and the, hey, I'm in good guy land, find me as fast as humanly possible. So it is it's really good training to go through and have that. And anecdotally, you know, when I, my last deployment, we were flying in a coalition and we worked with the Jordanians a good bit. I mean, they're 500 feet, 1,000 feet from our our building and we flew integrated with them on a daily basis almost. And one of their pilots was shot down. Unfortunately he was captured and he was murdered, but the propaganda that they used him for was, this is a textbook of why we do seer training. And unfortunately he didn't have the same level or even a, a basis really for this kind of resistance training. And you saw the propaganda that they were able to get out of them and um, just kind of put them through not having that training. And you did mention it. Everyone does have a breaking point and everyone will break at some point. So having this training at least helps you extend that, you know, as much as humanly possible. It's a bad spot. And, you know, again, you pray it's something no one has to go through or you ever get to that point. Right. So with that, we've talked about you getting to be a pilot. We've talked about being the FAPE. And then what we'll talk about next time is moving on to what's called the RTU or colloquially the B course where you learn about your major weapon system, which in your case was the F-16. But before we do that, let's talk about the future. And we've put an asterisk on a couple of things and said we'd mention it. There's something called UPT 2.5 out there as well as a new airframe. Let's talk about those for a little bit. Can you describe to me what UPT 2.5 is? Why uh, it's come about and what you think that future will bring. So great questions. And I'll, again, I'll ask her with like, it's, it's rapidly evolving and changing. I have never been to a UPT 2.5 base, nor seen the syllabus in great depth. So I'm, I've interviewed my buddy motor who actually is in charge of bringing UPT 2.5 on board on, on my podcast. So that's where a lot of my, my knowledge comes from is, I'm going to say directly from motor, which is the horse's mouth in this case, but the air force is trying to figure out how to be innovative, how to produce pilots faster. So they have kind of thrown the book out and said, all right, we did pilot training for five decades, more or less the exact same way. 
It produced great pilots. If it's not broke, don't fix it. All right. So now we got to produce more pilots. Now it's broke is, is the theory. So UPT next came along first and that was a six month trial period. They took a few T sixes and a few instructors from Randolph air force base and removed them and put them up in Austin, Texas to be completely separate away from the air force. And they said, here's a checkbook, go figure it out. And so Motor and his team, they were buying off-the-shelf technology like Oculus goggles, bringing in companies who had uh, simulator and AR technology, uh, augmented reality technology, and seeing, hey, if we if we give students an opportunity to utilize this technology, can we put them through the pipeline faster? So they iterated, I think, three times up there in Austin, you know, learning from one class to the next. And then it eventually transitioned through to UPT 2.0 and then UPT 2.5, and it's at Vance Air Force Base now, and that is what Vance uses. So the aspects that I think are really positive, and again, the Air Force is trying to figure out, they do things like proficiency advance. They've eliminated some of the barriers. For instance, the syllabus is black and white for the most part. If you were sitting in the flight room and it was a bad weather day and you knew you had an instrument ride coming up, you could not go over to the simulators with an instructor and get extra instruction on instruments because that was a syllabus deviation, which is a big deal in the Air Force. It got bri- it would get briefed all the way up to the two-star level. So you were very cognizant of the syllabus and you wouldn't do it. UPT 2.5 kind of knocks some of that stuff away and says, all right, hey, we can leverage technology like Oculus goggles, et cetera. We can allow students to utilize the simulator more often. We can utilize the simulator more often in the training to try and, hey, let's do five simulators instead of, you know, an extra flight because it's, it's a lower cost point and we can get more reps. And I will say there's a lot of value in that, which, you know, this podcast theme and technology is important, but like the, an F-16, while you go fly a defensive counter air sortie and it is valuable, really where you got your reps and practicing the flows and the picture and how to manage that was in the simulator because you could get a whole, you know, you could have 30 adversaries out there in the simulator that you're shooting, but in the jet, you can only put up two bad guys that are constantly regenerating, just trying to give you that picture. So UPT 2.5 is taking what technology is available and trying to say, Hey, you know what? Let's cut the red tape. Let's try it. All right. It worked great. Let's incorporate it. It didn't work. All right. We're not going to do that again. Students earn their wings after the T6. Personally, I mean, I do have some questions about that. I think that might be part of a numbers game to try and get more pilots on the books faster or down the road, eventually transition. Like after the T six, do you need to go to the T one or can we just send you to the C 17? That might be one of the courses of action that they're pursuing. So it is interesting to see how it's evolving. The T 38, as we mentioned is a really old platform. The T one is struggling and the maintenance costs from the T one is higher than expected again, because they're really just a lot of wear and tear for something that was not meant to do that mission set. 
So the Air Force is bringing online the T-7, which will replace the T-38. Who knows how it'll be incorporated if the T-1 will go away and just be an all T-6 pipeline, or maybe students will flow to the T-7. But I was fortunate enough to fly the T-7 Sim up at Oshkosh about a month ago, which is a really, it's a really cool and really robust trainer. The technology that's in there allows instructors allows for a syllabus to be developed where you can do a lot of training that you could not do in the T-38, a lot of advanced training. So a student that's going to go fly the F-35 or the F-22, that plane's pretty easy to fly. I've never flown it. So I'm going to say going off buddy's experiences, but like the F-16 is an easy plane to fly. The challenging aspect of flying an F-16 and flying a fighter is managing the weapon system, managing the fight, managing the formation, taking an adversary air picture and solving that. And in the T-7, you can leverage technology where you can present surface-to-air missile threats that are you know, simulated and shooting at the plane. You can replicate enemy aircraft. So leveraging some of that technology where you can, hey, we can create a virtual fight in the jet that we couldn't do in the T-38. So at a younger point in an aviator's life cycle, they're going to get exposed to some of those complex problems, which is is pretty cool to think about. So again, what is true today will not be true tomorrow. The Air Force, if you look in the last decade, with what they're trying to do with pilot training is vastly different. For nearly 50 years, it never changed. The planes changed. The T-37 went away and the T-6 showed up. The T1 showed up, but inherently it was X number of rides and you did not deviate from the syllabus. And this is the way we're going to do it to now. It's kind of more of a mindset of what technology can we leverage? How can we be innovative? Well, we always did it that way, but was that the best way? Those are the questions that are being asked and where it used to take an act of Congress to change something. Now there's a little bit more flexibility and like, hey, you know what? Just because we've always done it this way, maybe it's not the best way. And that's an acceptable answer, which is kind of nice and refreshing. Yeah, that is a, a nice change. I'll say coming from my background where uh, I guess nigh on 30 years ago now, you learn to drive ships by going to six months of surface warfare officer school. And even then, that that was a baseline. It was a lot of on-the-job training. There was a push uh, a number of years ago to go to more computer-based training, uh, less schoolhouse time. And without editorializing, we've had a couple of high-profile incidents in the past couple of years that have cost sailors lives that have been an indictment of that philosophy. And I'm not putting that philosophy philosophy on UPT 2.5, but rather just pointing out that the world is changing and we need to change. And we need these training strategies to change, but we need the flexibility to try something and then acknowledge the good parts of it and the parts that aren't good about it. So to your point about when people get their wings, you know, uh, we've all seen it. If we're in the military, there are there is a numbers game sometimes. Maybe that's the yep. right answer. Maybe that's not the right answer. But on a much more positive note, I think it's really critical. Something you just said there that, uh, you know, the F-16 you said is easy to fly. The F-22 is easy to fly. The F-35 is easy to fly. I, I'm going to guess they're easy to fly. They're not necessarily easy to fly well. But the point, more importantly, being 
that the task of an aviator is morphing maybe a little bit, if I'm hearing you correctly, into being less about flying, though that's still really important. Let's not de-emphasize that too much, and more about managing your plane as a weapon system. And I guess the analogy I would give is I was listening to a discussion of Formula One driving. And if you watch Formula One drivers and you look at their what they do now and the speed of their reaction times and what they have to deal with, I heard one, someone say that, you know, some of the greats from the 1960s driving Formula One wouldn't even be able to keep up with today's Formula One drivers. But by the same token, today's Formula One drivers would not even be able to drive a Formula One car because it's almost a different skill set. And it sounds like that's in some ways what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think that's probably it's that's a really good analogy. It was funny because I was flying with a guy not too long ago who was an Eagle driver back in the early 90s, late 80s. And, you know, I was talking about high off bore sight aim 9X shots and stuff. And he just kind of started laughing, you know, because he was used to tail aspect only, you know, a heater shot. And that's that's all they had. And so, you know, dog fighting, you know, BFM, basic fighter moving has, has drastically changed. That game plan has changed. I'd say drastically, but it has evolved as high off boresight weapons were introduced. So that was like one, that's one example, but we talked the weapon systems, both on our side and adversary side drastically changes what the threat picture looks like. And then the, the solutions you must bring to the table in order to solve them. And I think, you know, this is kind of to, to you know, tie in all of this in is I think it's really good that we're leveraging technology in order to go out there and be able to improve and do things better. The question of like, how long does it take to create a 10 year, you know, a fighter pilot with 10 years experience? Well, it takes 10 years. So we do have to be careful with cutting corners. And I say that loosely, but you know, if you start shaving a bunch of rides out of a syllabus saying, oh, we can get it later or no, we don't really need to do that. Yeah. That, that really warrants, you know, an aggressive look because what does it cost you? There's one interesting, like I, I heard Jello, uh, he had a guest on talking, uh, he was a DARPA, a colonel from DARPA. And, you know, if you ask Jello how many boat landings he has, I know he can tell you that number right away. Any naval aviator can tell you how many arrestments they have. And, you know, the DARPA colonel asked him that and Jello fired away, ah, you know, however many, you know, to the exact number. And his point to it was, like, I, I had never landed on a boat. That sounds like just absolutely terrifying to me. Uh, and really challenging. And I know it is. And that's why naval aviators take a lot of pride in it. But when it comes down to fighting, like your enemy doesn't care how hard it is landing on the boat. So if we could lever technology to maybe make it easier to land on the boat, you still need that skill set. But do you need to be that great at it? Can we have some kind of technology incorporated into the jet, the magic carpet, right, to, to bring people back? So that instead of spending 20 rides figuring out how to land on the boat, we can spend 10 rides. And then those other 10 rides, now we can spend on how to kill and break things better. You know, those are interesting discussions to have, I think. No, I completely agree. And I think that's a really good segue to wrap this because we're going to be coming back and talking to you in part of the next episode, which is going to be talking about how you learn to fly the F-16 specifically in the B course. But before I do that, is there anything we've forgotten? Anything I've left out? Any, any last words you'd like? No, I appreciate it. It's fun to talk about. There's obviously a lot here to unpack. And we really, 
I think have scratched the surface because, you know, for the Air Force in particular and, and probably the Navy, I think we'll see over the next decade, it's always a battle of resources, but technology is just rapidly changing and that pace it's changing is much faster than it's ever been before in the history of the world. You know, 2006, no one knew what an iPhone is, but now look at us, how much just that has transformed our world. Um, and then take that theme and apply it to the technologies that are being thrown out there on both good and bad guy sides for how to kill and break things. It's forcing us to change and evolve at a much faster pace, which is a challenge for large organizations like the Department of Defense. Well said. Well said. Well, Rain, thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. Absolutely. So uh, we'll be back in the next episode. We'll be talking to Rain. We'll be talking to some other people about how you transitioned from flight school. But as I said at the top of the episode, uh, Rain is the host of the Afterburn podcast, which you can find on your favorite podcasting channel. And you can tune in and there's a lot of great discussions there, including the one he was discussing about motor and hearing more about UPT 2.5, as well as a whole bunch of other great content. So appreciate you listening and we'll see you next time. Okay. I hope you enjoyed our discussion with rain. You can hear more of John's content on his show, the afterburn podcast. Next time we're going to talk again with rain about learning to fly the F 16 in the air forces B course and then switch gears to discuss training to fly the F-14 Tomcat with pilot Craig Crunch-Schneider and Rio Ward Mooch Carroll. Until then, keep your head on a swivel and get in the fight.